John Calvin said, Among Christians, there ought to be so great a dislike of schism, schism is division, as that they may always avoid it so fast as lies in their power. He hated schism. His desire was not to leave the church, but uh, providence dictated otherwise. The Roman Catholic Church kicked him out, and so the Reformed Church was born. And so what Calvin hated and what Satan intended for evil, God intended for good, because as a result of the Reformed Church being established, the true church grew exponentially. So out of division came multiplication. Uh, when it came to his disagreements with Luther on the sacraments, he tried valiantly to try to bring unity between the two uh, sides on that debate, but it was to no use. Uh, Luther obstinately refused any kind of compromise, any kind of uh, working out of the situation. Uh, he insisted that unless Calvin could assert that he was masticating upon the literal body of Jesus in his mouth when he took communion, that he couldn't have fellowship with him. And Luther, obviously, from my perspective, was uh, wrong on this. He, he actually admitted that he was wrong on his deathbed when he was talking with Melanchthon. But uh, this division that Calvin hated and he tried hard to work against actually providentially worked out for the strengthening of the church theologically. And especially after this, uh, time that the Reformed churches were all the more zealous. How do we become more consistent in the way in which we apply the Scriptures to all of life? I've seen church splits where no doubt Satan was attempting to totally destroy the witness and the effectiveness of the church, and yet God providentially used it where two churches now were more aggressively and more effectively um, uh, taking on Satan's kingdom than before. And I've seen this in a number of different cities. Sometimes it works totally for the bad, but I've seen the Lord turn it around and work it for the good. I'm glad that we have three PCA churches uh, here in town. Right from the very first church that was planted, the leaders said, you know, we really need to have a number of different churches in the city. Even if there's different perspectives, we're going to reach far more of Omaha. And this has proved to be true. We're going to reach far more by having three smaller separate churches than we would one church working all together. Now, I bring up those different illustrations just to illustrate that ministry splits are not the end of the world. They're not necessarily always bad. It turns out to have been an incredibly wonderful move on God's part because uh, for this particular split because Barnabas and Paul now are reaching far more people, raising up far more leaders, uh, planting far more churches than they otherwise would have been able to do. Now, that is not to say that we should be, therefore, engaged in uh, church splits, you know, uh, let us sin that grace may abound. Um, the, the exact opposite. Romans 12:18 says, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. What I'm saying is there are times when coming to an agreement simply cannot happen. And sometimes division providentially turns out to be providentially a good end. Now, you're not going to see a lot of sermons on this text uh, preaching this perspective. I do have a couple of commentaries say really the text forces you to that conclusion. They didn't delve into it that much. But nowhere is Barnabas accused of doing wrong. Nowhere. Paul had his reasons for the split, and it appears that Luke and the church in Antioch agreed with Paul without disagreeing with Barnabas. 
And you might think, now wait a minute, they can't both be right. Here they have a big fight, they go their separate ways, something's wrong here, they can't both be right. Okay, we got to figure out who's right and who's wrong. And um, I think that uh, we should not uh, look at it that way. Uh, I, I'm not doubting that there was sin involved in this dispute here. We'll look at that in a little bit. Uh, but I think that this separation turned out to be a necessary and a good thing. God allowed it to happen because it was needed. And yes, they were, in my view, they were both right in their primary concerns, even if they could have gone about this in a different way. So that's my thesis. That's the direction we're going to be heading in this sermon. You can see if I uh, really can prove my case from the text or not. But let me give you a little bit of background first of all. Barnabas and Paul had just come off of an incredibly wonderful missionary trip. And there were difficulties involved because Paul got very, very sick, according to Galatians, on this uh, trip, probably had malaria. Uh, there, there was, was dangers, there were some disasters that had happened, but these things actually drew the hearts of Barnabas and Paul together into a deep uh, friendship. There were joyous things, many converts, many churches planted, uh, effectiveness in their spiritual uh, warfare. And earlier in this chapter... They're very excited. Both of them are reporting to the General Assembly about the awesome things that God has been doing amongst the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas were friends who would be willing to lay down their lives for each other, you know, if it came to that. And so, in one sense, this split was an unfortunate thing. I'm sure it grieved them both. We're going to be seeing a little bit later on that they were fairly quick, not just to appreciate the split, but they were very quick to appreciate each other and affirm each other in terms of uh, the, 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 their, their importance in, in the kingdom. Now, there were some complicating factors that may have helped to precipitate the, uh, the split. Not necessarily, but uh, they may have helped. Uh, we've already looked at the huge controversy over circumcision, the place of the Gentiles in Acts chapter 15. And somewhere between verses 1 and verse 5 of this chapter, the book of Galatians was written. And in the book of Galatians, we've got a few other details that are fleshed out, one of which may have hurt the feelings of Barnabas a great deal because here he publicly, for all people and all time, has recorded that Barnabas played the hypocrite. Okay, that he had not done what he was supposed to be doing and he had compromised the gospel. This was a serious issue. And so Barnabas's real relational uh, strengths and his people's strengths led to a weakness that when people were drawing him away from the truth, he had a hard time standing up. And Paul's words were rather harsh words to both Peter and to Barnabas. That may or may not have impacted the emotional... Uh, you know, the feelings of uh, Barnabas with regard to this friendship. The second thing that has happened is that Barnabas seems to be considered to be the leader when he's in Jerusalem. His name's listed first in Jerusalem. Everywhere else, Paul's name is listed first. It seems Antioch considers Paul to be the leader. Now, that may have hurt Barnabas's feelings as well because he's definitely the older man. Uh, Paul's much his junior, and yet Paul, you know the pecking order that tends to go on in all social groups, Paul is the dominant personality, and it's just he may not have intended it, but he just automatically climbs into the leadership position uh, over time. It appears that earlier Barnabas was content to have it that way, 
But at this point, he is exerting his desire to have a say-so in the details of this trip. Now, let's move on to Paul's new plan in verse 36. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Perfectly logical plan. The churches in Galatia and perhaps elsewhere have been really hurt by the Judaizers. And so he wants to go back, see how they're doing. He's already sent a letter to them, but he probably wants to do further damage control, further solidify them in the faith. Very logical, very practical, straightforward uh, plan that he has. But Paul is blindsided by a very legitimate desire that Barnabas holds steadfastly to. Verse 37. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. Now, the word determined indicates that Paul resisted the idea when it was first brought up, and Barnabas is not going to back down. It's that important to him. He's not going to cave in like Barnabas probably ordinarily did with Paul, the more dominant personality. And before we jump to any conclusions as to who's right or wrong on this, let me make two observations. Commentaries point out, that there is no indication in the text of Acts 13 or Acts 15 here that Barnabas thought Paul was wrong uh, about the you know whether or not Mark had done wrong in Acts 13. I think Barnabas is absolutely in agreement with Paul. Mark has done the wrong thing uh, when he bailed out in uh, chapter 13. When I preached on that chapter. I pointed out that Mark could not have picked a worse time or a worse place uh, to leave them in the lurch. Paul was sick. They had traveled a ways inland. And it was not easy at that point. In fact, it was impossible at that point to get a, a new recruit or to change plans. And so all of the work that Mark had been doing up to that point, now Barnabas and Paul have to pick up the slack on that. And with Paul being in a weakened condition that he was, he could have threatened the whole trip. Now, we're going to look at that in a bit. But in chapter 13, Barnabas clearly sides with Paul, not with his younger nephew, uh, Mark. Barnabas sees something in Mark that Paul does not see. And Paul sees something about the whole situation that they are going into that Barnabas does not see. And it's so easy, I think, for people to talk past uh, one another and to be blind to the other person's concerns uh, because they're so trying to prove their point, they're not looking at the other person's concerns that they have, especially when emotions get involved. And emotions were definitely a part of this. The Greek is quite strong. In verse uh, 39, the word for contention became so sharp. Now, it reminds me of the story of the man who immigrated from Scotland to America. He ended up in New York, got an apartment, and when he was all settled down, he called his parents uh, back, and his mom asked him, well, uh, what are the neighbors like there? He says, oh, neighbors really are strange. On one side, there's a man who keeps banging his head against the wall, and on the other side, there's a woman who moans and groans and cries all the time, and his mom says, I'd keep to myself if I was you. And he says, oh, I do. I just stay in my room and play my bagpipes. (laughs) 
Sometimes we're too close to the situation to see the other person's concerns. And we're thinking, what do you have to gripe about? You know, what are you groaning over? You know, I'm the one who's having the difficulty here. And I think that may have, in part, been what was happening with Paul and Barnabas. Let's look at Paul's reaction, and then I'll explain. Verse 38. Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Paul is just as insistent that Mark is going to be a liability. He obviously sees a serious problem. Let's try to look at it from Paul's perspective. Just do a little bit of review here. You've got to realize where Mark left them in chapter 13, verse 13. It was in Perga. It was a long, long ways from home. They had already traveled inland to Antioch, Pisidian. It was a malarial marsh area. In Galatians chapter 4, it says by this time he had contracted a serious, Paul had contracted a serious illness. And many people hypothesize that there's tons of malaria in that area. He'd got, gotten down with malaria. If young John Mark, who's perhaps still a teenager, uh, maybe 18, 19 years old at this point, if he was supposed to be doing a supportive role, which most commentaries assume, then this is really uh, a bad thing to be bailing out right then because there's no way that they can cover for him adequately. Uh, it would have been much better to never have come on the trip at all than to make the whole team dependent upon him and then to just bail out and just leave, you know way into the journey. After they've landed, they've traveled a couple of days and say, okay, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. Uh, Paul, who's in a weakened condition, Barnabas, who's not exactly a spring chicken. We know from other uh, evidences he's growing quite a bit older. His hair is uh, white uh, based on their comparing him to Zeus and Mark, I mean, uh, Paul to Apollos, the speaker. So these guys have really got to carry an extra heavy, heavy load. Um, if he had bailed out a few days earlier, perhaps they could have uh, changed their itinerary, changed their plans somewhat. But if you look at that background, you show, uh, uh, see, uh, you see that it shows no consideration for the trouble, the possible danger that it would leave the entire team in. It was just irresponsible. It was a failure of duty. It was not thinking of the team. It was highly inconsiderate. And that's why one of the definitions of that word there for to depart includes in its meaning, quote, to desert with a lack of concern for what has been left, unquote. Lack of concern. No wonder Paul was opposed to this idea. Uh, another thing that Paul recognized was a moral weakness in Mark. Now, many people assume he's um, in his late teens, maybe early 20s, and so it could just be, you know, a growing immaturity issue. But it seems to be more than that because the word departed and verse 38 shows that both Luke and Paul realized there was a moral character weakness that was going on in chapter 13. By the way, most commentators believe that this is the young man in Mark 14 and verse 51 who fled naked, you know, when Christ is being arrested and they, young men grab him and he fle fle uh, flees from them naked. Um, the most common interpretation was that he was a teenager. He had fallen asleep after the uh, Last Supper. And uh, when he wakes up, he sees that the apostles and Jesus have gone. And wanting to be with them, he just quickly grabs the sheet that he was sleeping with, goes running out, 
And when he gets there, he sees Jesus being hauled off. And then these guys lay hold of him and he leaves the sheet and runs off naked. So it's just another illustration of the, a little bit of immaturity, the impulsivity of young John Mark. He had some growing up to do and Paul knew it. Here's another consideration. In verse 36, when they're making plans for the second missionary journey, where are they going? They're going to exactly the same areas where Mark had failed before. That's the context of this dispute. Uh, and this is why some modern missionaries uh, are so careful, because they've seen disasters happen on the mission field. They're so careful when they take young, raw recruits to make sure they've had some training and some testing here in America. Uh, I knew one mission team in, in uh, China uh the whole thing was cut short. It was a disaster because one of the people freaked out at the primitive living conditions just could not handle that. Well, that's a very costly mistake uh, to make. Paul felt that if John Mark could not handle it back then, what's changed? Sure, he's repented, but what's changed in terms of his abilities that's going to keep him from uh, bailing out now? This is not simply a training trip. This is a dangerous ministry trip. And there has to be solidarity. So from Paul's perspective, he's saying, okay, fine. Uh, we can take another chance with, with, uh, with John Mark in a different situation, but let's not do it on this trip. You know, let's do it in some other kind of a context to deliberately put a weak link into the team is going to make the whole team fall down. And I think Paul was right, even if he was a little bit too crusty, maybe in the way in which he handled it. I think he was right. And I think Barnabas believed that he was right. I think Barnabas convinced him at least that much because if you look at verse 39, Barnabas takes Mark on a much, much easier missions trip. He takes him to Cyprus, which is a civilized area that they're both used to. In fact, it's both of their home, to, home island. And so I think Paul was right. And just to fill this in and a footnote in your outlines, I give uh, reasons to believe that Luke, by inspiration, agreed that Paul was right as well. So what these two are doing, they're looking at the same problem, but they're looking at it from different perspectives. Verse 39, Then the contention became so sharp that they departed from one another. This was not a mild disagreement. This was probably a shouting match that was going on. Here's how the dictionary defines the word. A sharp fit of anger, sharp contention, angry dispute. He didn't know that Paul had things like that, right? <laughs> but he did. So it really was not a pretty sight. And both of them, I'm sure, thought that they were defending a biblical principle. Barnabas is probably incensed that a promising young man is being discarded. He's very relational-oriented, according to the description of Acts earlier on. And it grieves him to see that Mark's just being written off. You know, where's this grace that you've been preaching about, Paul? You know, Peter denied Christ and God had grace for him. He gave him a second chance. How come you're not giving John Mark a second chance? And so he, he obviously repented because he wants to come along on this trip. And so Barnabas is encouraged by the repentance. He does not want to see him destroyed. He sees such promise there. You know what? Barnabas was right. Mark goes on to be an incredible leader in the church and he even writes the Gospel of Mark. That's the mark that we're talking about. Much later in 2 Timothy 4, verse 11, Paul says, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Very interesting. That's 12 years later. 
or is it 11 years? 12, 12 years later. Yep. Uh, 61 AD. But if Barnabas had never taken Mark under his wings the second time, there would have been no opportunity to prove that he was useful to Paul in ministry. Paul, Barnabas probably sees Paul as being too driven, too task-oriented. You know, if people get in the way of the task being accomplished, well, you just step on them a little bit. And just to be fair to Paul, he was not just task-oriented. He was people-oriented as well. Uh, let me give you one example. By inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he said that he related to his churches like a nursing mother. That's 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. So it's not, you know, a complete either or, but uh, all biographers uh, tend to agree that Paul was so goal-oriented, so task-oriented, so missional in his objectives, he had a harder time, it was a little bit harder than it was for Barnabas, to notice the impact that things were having upon the people uh, who were around him. Paul's being logical about this debate. Barnabas is being relational. Have you seen differences like that amongst people? Uh, I've seen these uh, all the time. And what happens when there are disputes is you find people lining up, taking sides. You know, this person's right or this person's right. In the same way, you can find people who will say, they can see that person's perspective or this one's perspective uh, because they're much like them. And Barnabas and Paul are classic examples of the difference between what people have recently, more recently called modality leaders who rank very, very high in their relational skills and sodality leaders who are very task-oriented and rank very, very high in getting the job done. Years ago, Ralph Winter wrote an interesting uh, essay. In fact, he's the one that coined those terms, uh, modality and sodality leaders, and he was just looking at missions. And he points out that when you analyze going back hundreds of years and all of the missionaries who are out there right now, the... People who are high sodality leaders are the ones who are the most effective in cross-cultural missions. In fact, all of the uh, pioneer missionaries, you know, in the 17, the 1800s, were high sodality leaders. In fact, it just irritated people who were around them who came afterwards because they're so driven. It is no sensitivity whatsoever to other people. They expect everybody else to be just as driven as they are in the things that um, and that they are doing. And boy, did they get a lot accomplished. Uh, my dad was, uh, you know, he, he, he could understand he was sensitive to the needs of others, but high sodality. I mean, the, the amount of stuff this guy did, killing himself and probably killing other people in the process, is just amazing. These were the pioneer missionaries that were out there. Um, and the best missionaries within your own culture he says, would be the modality leaders. And this has been true to such an extent that he characterizes the local church, generally speaking, there are exceptions, but generally speaking as being modality organizations and parachurch ministries like uh, Wycliffe or missions organizations as being sodality organizations. Let me briefly quote from another missions uh, expert on, on this um, same issue. So the modality is essentially a people-oriented structure designed to serve the people who are a part of it. Peace and harmony are high values. Being is seen as superior to doing. Process is often more important than goal. 
On the other hand, sodality is task-oriented. People are also important in sodalities, but largely to the degree that they contribute to accomplishing the goal of the organization. Discipline is much higher, and people are eligible to be dismissed if they are found to be incompetent and thereby unable or unwilling to help accomplish the task. Being is important in sodalities, but doing is even more important. About 80% of the ordained clergy are like Barnabas and essentially people-oriented. And only about 20% might be task-oriented sodality types like Paul. But nevertheless, the fact remains that most outreach and mission work gets accomplished by the latter type. This may be one of the reasons Luke never so much as mentions Barnabas again after this volatile incident, although Paul graciously does so in 1 Corinthians 9.6. Now, with that background, description of what those two things are, I think you can see both are needed in the church. If you're going to have balance in the church, you've got to have both modality leaders as well as sodality leaders. Each has his strengths, each has his weaknesses, and probably their weaknesses of both of them were highlighted uh, in this incident here. But it's fascinating that the church of Antioch is mature enough to recognize both men have valid issues and they wanted to value the contributions of both men. They don't take sides. And uh, I, I think that's very interesting. I think we make it a big mistake when people try to make one or the other side right in this conflict. I think the point is that Paul was best adapted to cross-cultural missions and Barnabas is best adapted to the regional uh, missions that he was involved in. And so they split up in verses 39 through 40. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. Barnabas finds a niche in which he really flourishes Paul brings along Silas, perfectly adapted to cross-cultural missions. F.F. F. Bruce says, The present disagreement was overruled for good. Instead of one missionary and pastoral expedition, there were two. But it wasn't just two teams. It was two specialized teams who trained numerous leaders and missionaries and multiplied their effectiveness many times over. And I'm not going to get into the details of uh the impact that Paul has when he brings Timothy on in, this, in the next chapter, 16, or the impact Barnabas has on, on Mark and on a whole generation of young believers. But the bottom line was the church was strengthened. Verse 41, he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Okay, that's the background. And I think uh, there's a lot of lessons we've already learned just by going through the verses uh, uh, phrase by phrase. But what I want to do is dig just a little bit deeper and see if there are not some more lessons we can learn from this and apply in our own lives. I believe this passage shows us that we ought to learn to value the differences in the body. The heated exchange between Barnabas and Saul might have been avoided if they were more sensitive to the different ways each person was looking at, uh, at the issue. Maybe not. It may not have helped. But based on Paul's later statements, I think we can at least say that we need to value the differences that are in the body, just as the church in Antioch valued both Barnabas and Saul. They, they weren't able to get them to work together, but they valued them working separately. And I think that's an attitude that we need to have. There are some people who insist we've got to take sides on all of these controversies that are circulating around in Reformed, uh, you know, the Reformed camp. I, I disagree. 
you can have your view, and I've got my own views of who's right and who's wrong and some of these different debates, but I don't think we are necessarily compromising by valuing what God is doing through both sides of some of these debates. I don't think we're being a sellout. And I should point out that there will be some of you who are going to have to butt heads with people uh, who are different from you within the congregation. It's going to grieve you that you're having to do this. And let me just give you just give you an example. Just as sodality leaders make the best pioneer missionaries in cross-cultural situations, sodality leaders often make the best entrepreneurial business startup leaders. And when there's a butting of heads because uh, of this difference of focus, uh, some people get all bent out of shape and they think, oh, that just cannot happen. But I think some of the butting of heads is unavoidable. It's unavoidable because these businessmen would not be successful if they were not so driven, so focused, so goal-oriented, and so task-oriented in the things that they were doing. And I just think there's a place to value such differences in the body. Even if you're the one, and I'm the one who gets hurt on occasion, I think we still have to value that. Uh, Jesus was the only person that had a balance of both modality and sodality. Most of us are just going to have to say, well, somebody else is going to have to balance out the weaknesses that I have. Okay, a second application I think can logically be drawn is that conflicts are rarely single or simple issues. Now, the people who are debating many times think they're just about one issue, and uh, yet, these arguments are filled with complex assumptions that neither party discusses. And they get really frustrated with each other. You know, what is wrong with you? These facts are so clear, you know? And you keep repeating the same facts over and over, hoping that they're going to understand what you're saying. And yet, it's not an issue over the facts. They both see the same facts. What the problem is, is they've never analyzed what are the assumptions that are going into this. Why is... She, I probably shouldn't use my wife because we never fight, you know, but I should use somebody else as an example. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, you need to analyze, why are they interpreting these facts differently? What are some assumptions that we're just, we think we're on the same page on, but we're really not? We're looking at the problems differently. Until you deal with the presuppositions, the assumptions, you're not going to make progress. Now, I'm not even going to try to guess what the differing assumptions that Barnabas and Paul had. I think there are some people who do guess what that is. I've given some hints already of what I think they are. But it's really not important. I think it's clear from two things that they did indeed have differing assumptions. Let me give you those two things that make me conclude this. First, they couldn't resolve their dispute despite the fact they were godly, mature Christians, who wanted to submit to God and to His Holy Word. They, they couldn't, there wasn't any one Scripture that you could pull out and say, you're right, you're wrong, you need to repent, you need to change your mind. Because if there had been a Scripture that had been pulled out that He could have given to this person, the person so corrected, I'm convinced, would have instantly repented and would have dealt with that. Because both of these men were sold out for Christ. They wanted to submit to Him. They wanted to be holy. That's one of the reasons why they're fighting. Is there, they, they see the concerns differently uh, than from each other. So that's the first reason. Second, the church can't figure out who's right or who's wrong. Antioch is the sending mission, right? They're the one who has authority over this team. They don't step in and determine, okay, you're right, you're wrong, and you need to clean up your act. No. 
they can see that they both have legitimate concerns. And so those two facts show me that the disagreement was a much more complicated than a single issue. Paul became more aware of this as time went on, and as a result, it became easier for him to work with Barnabas and to work uh, with Mark. And uh, you can see that in Colossians, Philemon, 1 Corinthians, and 2 Timothy. Now, this leads to two more connected observations. Conflicts can happen even among mature Christians. And examples abound in church history. Uh, We started with the example of the conflict between uh, Calvin and Luther. On his deathbed, Luther said that he regretted how he handled the differences between the two of them. But conflicts can occur, and sometimes the different approaches to issues are serious enough, you just can't work together. It would be disruptive. So here's, here's my admonition. Don't write off other godly people simply because they've been in conflict with somebody. Uh, I, I see a lot of this happening. Say, oh, you were in conflict with so-and-so, okay, and they immediately take sides even before they've examined what the issues are. Okay, the church in Antioch and Luke himself, I think, show maturity in handling this. And I wish there were a lot more Reformed uh, people who would appreciate differences without feeling like they've got to come to a conclusion themselves and write off one group. Fourth observation. Not all conflicts can be resolved, but they should be amicably finished. Amicably means friendly, friendly. <laughs> How do I know that Barnabas and Paul made up and valued each other? Well, it's hinted at in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 6, where Paul shows a large-heartedness in his acknowledging of the enormous sacrifices of Barnabas. Now, I think at that point, uh, that would have been yeah, 12 years later, uh, A.D. 61. At that point, Paul is still as convinced as he ever was that it was a good thing that Mark did not come on that second mission trip. It just would not have been good. I think Barnabas was probably at that point convinced of that as well. But Paul has no lingering hostility to Barnabas. That's the key point. He puts Barnabas on a par with himself. It's also hinted at in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 11 where he acknowledges the fantastic mentoring and discipleship that Barnabas did in the life of Mark when he says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. So just because you've got a conflict with somebody does not mean you can't be friends. Just because you see quite differently, or just because you know there's no way the two of us can work together on this project, does not mean you can't be friends. Too many people see differences, and then they just become alienated, and they consider this person you know, in a hostile relationship. It's not necessary. There's no reason why in certain circumstances you can say, I love you, brother, and I think I love you distance better than close. No. (laughs) But I I love you, and I want to affirm you. I want to bless you. I want to help your ministry. But we just don't work well together. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't think. Now, that doesn't mean you, there, there was, there was, uh, uh, you know, ministries that they did engage in jointly later on, and we see that in some of the scriptures I've just cited, but, uh, you can still be friends with those that you disagree with. Okay, the fifth point is simply advice. Ask God to make you sensitive to the hot buttons of other people and try to avoid pushing those hot buttons too many times. I think this is exactly what Barnabas was doing on his whole first missionary trip with Paul. 
I think there were buttons he could have pushed which would have ticked Paul off a whole lot sooner. And Barnabas, the modality leader that he was, he just knew to avoid those types of things, right? And even the sodality leaders, they need to learn how to not punch the buttons that are going to get other people ticked off. But when we get to this issue here, he knows it's not just me now that's going to have to be sucking it in. Mark's future ministry, Mark's future life is on the line. It's in jeopardy, and I just can't give in on this issue at this point. That's what's going on in Barnabas' life. And so he insists with Paul, it's going to be my way or it's going to be the highway. Uh, we're going to part. And even here, I think if he had suggested ahead of time, you know, you got a good point, Mark. Um, it might be a, a difficult thing. Would you mind if we had two different teams and we went off in different directions? They could have perhaps solved this without coming to blows. Okay, point F is simply an amplification of points I've already made. Don't be crippled in ministry by focusing on the negative. Move on. Deal with your sins when they become apparent to you, but don't stop life simply because a conflict has happened. Now, I get this from the fact that we know both men continued in ministry with joy in the Lord, with the power of the Holy Spirit. They did not let this incident take the wind out of their sails. Another way of saying this is that blow-ups may on occasion be unresolvable, but don't hang on to your anger. If you hang on to your anger, you're going to have bitterness and other negative thoughts that are going to begin to develop and negative attitudes uh, toward people. Never let anger fester under the surface. Later on, Paul tells us in Ephesians and elsewhere, he tells us, uh, get rid of anger. Get rid of all bitterness. Get rid of clamor. Just do not allow those negative emotions to continue on. Point G. We should not allow cynicism to make us unable to take some risks with people who have failed. Uh, Barnabas himself had been hurt by his younger brother, a uh, younger nephew, uh, Mark. But Barnabas takes the risk of another failure by reaching out to him. Now, in hindsight, Barnabas probably wished he'd suggested a different context in which he could uh, help uh, Mark out. But I think we can learn a lot from the life of John Mark. Uh, some of the people who have irritated you and hurt you, that you just say, you know, I'd just as soon be real long distance away from them. They could very well be John Mark's in your future. You need to realize that. You know, what? How, would I, how would I think 10 years from now, if this guy became a John Mark, would I regret the way that I am reacting to this person? Realize that this could def definitely uh, happen. Don't write them off. Twelve years after this incident, we find John Mark working with Paul, which by itself is amazing, facing risk of imprisonment himself by visiting Paul when everybody else has forsaken him except for Luke. They're all scared. Uh, we see that Barnabas has ministered to his weakness. He's infused some backbone into this young nephew. Let me give you a summary uh, of these verses. In Colossians 4.10... Mark is listed as one of Paul's team members some 12 years uh, later, 61 AD. He speaks of the greetings from Mark, the cousin, or some translate it, the nephew, could be going either way, of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. So Paul is being relational here. He's saying, hey guys, I don't want you judging John Mark, for what happened in Acts 13. That was 12 years ago. There's a lot of water under the bridge. This guy's really matured. I want you to receive him. He's very useful. Um, and Philemon 24, he sends greetings from his fellow laborer, Mark. 
So by this time, Mark's not an apprentice. He treats him as a peer. Very, very interesting. In 2 Timothy 4, in context of lamenting that all had forsaken him, when he was defending himself before Caesar, he says, only Luke is with me. Get Mark. Bring him with you, for he is useful to me in ministry. And so he knows that Mark is going to have a boldness that nobody else is going to have. Mark was able to prove himself. And what a great tribute to the work of God's grace in changing losers into winners. Now, of course, the ultimate glory is that Mark was able to write the Gospel that was named after him, the Gospel of Mark. And so quitters can be uh, given backbone by God's grace. They can change. And uh, I, I love the character of John Mark. If you've got a John Mark in your life and he's repented, then, you know, take, don't let fear stop you. Take some risks. Faith does take risks. Point H is the lesson of God's sovereignty. If God is sovereign over all things, as he says that he is, well, we can have total confidence that even though this is maybe not the ideal thing, God is working these things together for the good of the church and for the good of these people and for his own glory. The Lord used the love and the relational skills of Barnabas to rescue, to restore Mark, and to make Mark feel like he belonged. But I believe he used the incredible sacrificial uh, um, drivenness of Paul to stir up Mark to say, I can't believe I backed out. I want to be like Paul. Uh, it, it, it pulled something out of him. And the Spirit of God used both Barnabas and Mark in his life. And so I would encourage you to trust God's sovereignty in these situations. Do what you can. You've got your own responsibilities to maintain and make the relationships as solid as you can. But sometimes you just have to trust God or even the divisions. And just as an example, when it comes to the, all the denominationalism out there, I, I don't like it. And I don't think it's biblical ideal to be out there. But I do believe that God in His sovereignty has ordained the present denominationalism because various facets of truth and practice have been able to survive when they may not have survived if it had not been for all of the division uh, that has been out there. One person said, many people tend to forget that God is sovereign and is able to turn seeming tragedies into triumphs, defeats into victories, problems into opportunities, divisions into multiplications, humiliations into character-building experiences. Well, that's exactly what God did in this situation. Two more observations, just very, very briefly. If you are the John Mark who has failed and Paul has already written you off, don't allow that humiliating failure to keep you from trying. Don't allow it to make you quit. Ask forgiveness, humble yourself, seek to be mentored out of your weak areas, prove yourself. Mark refused to be discouraged just because Paul said he didn't want to, to work with him. I know more than one person who's given up even trying because somebody told them that they were a washout. Well, don't let men destine your future. Your future is held in God's sovereign hand. Okay? And rather than growing bitter and cynical and resentful, lay hold of God's grace and let Him exalt you in His perfect time. Just be faithful. The last exhortation that I have is that you should trust God to be able to bring beauty out of ashes. And I love that Scripture in Isaiah 61. It's describing the work of the Spirit-anointed Jesus. And it says that the purpose of His coming was, quote, to console those who mourn in Zion, 
to give them beauty for ashes. So, in other words, all the ashes that show their mourning are going to be replaced by the beauty of a nice garment. To give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. God is indeed glorified by bringing beauty out of the ashes of your life. Even when you have flamed out, He loves to do it. He did not make you for nothing. He made you for His glory. He made you for His kingdom. Every one of you has an important role to play. And so whether you are a Paul, a Barnabas, or a John Mark, who has just recently uh, 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 had a failure, what you need to do is trust God. Say, Lord, I thank You that You have a purpose for my life and I'm going to trust You to bring multiplication out of the division. Amen. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You bring defeat right out of the, uh, right out of the jaws of defeat. You bring victory. I thank You that You are a God who rules in the affairs of men uh, that the preparations of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from you. And sometimes even the mistakes that come off our lips are things that, uh, uh, that advance your uh, uh, glory in ways totally unexpected to us. I thank you that you cause even the wrath of man to praise you, as the Scriptures have said. And I pray that you would give to us a confidence, even in the midst of division and turmoil and difficulty, that You are working all things to Your glory and for our good. Help us to respond appropriately, not to become bitter, uh, but to uh, respond with faith and confidence and encouragement and continuing to love and to bless those that we've had our disagreements with. May we end our disagreements amicably and uh, uh, grow in this grace that was shown by Barnabas and, and, and uh, Paul in later years. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.